6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through 5. But the reason it's important is because of Ezekiel 38. Because there we, uh, the Scythians are in view, and they come from the uttermost parts of the north. They don't just come from the north. They come from the uttermost parts of the north. And in fact, that invasion has not yet happened and is about to. It's about to in our lifetime. Maybe relatively soon, the way things are going. Pray that it doesn't. Yet. And don't be in a hurry for the rapture. If the rapture came a few years ago, you and I might not have been saved. So praise God that he tallies. Uh, that he tarries. <laughs> and tallies. <laughs> but um, uh, so anyway, here we have the Babylonians in view. I will bring evil from the north, a great destruction. Now, this destruction is going to be the Babylonians under the leadership of a general by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who becomes the king of Babylon. And you're going to find out he is the Lord's anointed, strange phrase. He is used by God to be his instrument of judgment. And Jeremiah understands that. But it makes it a very unpop unpopular theme because the, his Judah is very pro-Egypt, Babylon's rival. And they keep getting in these political alliances. And Jeremiah says, don't do it. The Babylonians are going to win. And furthermore, it's of God. And, uh, and uh, Judah doesn't listen. And they keep getting in these intrigues and they get smashed. And, of course, Jeremiah's theme song is, uh, even though Zedekiah subsequently is a friendly king, his, his second lieutenants are, are uh, the old guard and very pro-Egypt, and Zedekiah is, uh, is very useless in trying to protect Jeremiah from the abuse of his enemies. But that's we're getting ahead of ourselves. Now, it's interesting that in verse 7 we have the symbol used called the lion, and that symbol happens. It doesn't necessarily prove anything, but the symbol happens to be uh, the same symbol that Daniel sees in Daniel 7 of Babylon, being the lion. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the nations on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. Popular theme. Can you imagine Jeremiah telling Judah this? Didn't get all, it didn't go over very well. Verse 8, For this, gird yourselves with a sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass at that day, saith the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astounded, and the prophets shall wonder. In fact, the word is to be there also to be astounded, to be just flabbergasted. He's speaking here of the prophets. I suspect he's primarily, he's including himself because he himself will express amazement as what the Lord shows him. There's some things here you'll see in his own language. He's flabbergasted what the Lord's going to show him. But he's also speaking of the false prophets, these prophets that say, hey, everything's going to be all right. Now, verse 10 is one of those problem verses in the Scriptures and real translational problems with it. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Let me just highlight the fact that verse 10 is one of the most problematical verses in, among the scholars in, in the book of Jeremiah. 
Verse 10, then said, then said I, Ah, Lord God, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth unto thy soul. Well, we know that God never deceives his people, so this whole thing has got a, is a combination of things. A, what the translation really says, and there's some arguments about that. And secondly, even given that, what does it really mean? And there's about three different schools of thought, and I won't bore you with any of these because none of them are really resolved too well. Um, uh, first of all, it, uh, um, it says, Surely deceive thy people, saying, Ye shall have peace. Jeremiah never prophesied peace, so it doesn't mean what it says literally in any case. Part of its translation, part of it might be under trying to get an inference as to what the, to infer the tone that is presented at here. Um, it turns out in the Septuagint version, where they translated this into Greek some three centuries before Christ, uh, there they translated this slightly different, implying that these were, in the, in the tone of the verbs and such, that there was words of the false prophets. Um, other scholars more commonly feel that there's a permissive first cause concept here, that, that God permitted others to deceive them, in effect. And that's what Jeremiah has an eye toward. There isn't, in the language, there isn't a first cause, second cause kind of kind of structure. So there's some of those issues. I'm not going to belabor this. It's not that important, but I just want you to be aware of there is a, there is a, if that, if you stumble over this, it, it is, it is tricky. And, uh, because God did not deceive them. He plainly warned Israel, and that's exactly what is all going on here. So, so this is some kind of an expression, partly maybe in the translation, partly in us understanding the tone of Jeremiah here, and that, uh, that, um, then said, I, then said I, it doesn't mean he's right, uh, Ah, Lord, surely thou hast greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall have peace, whereas the sword reacheth into the soul. It's, a, it's an expression of, uh, of, of nothing else confusion. So I wouldn't make a big thing of it, but just be aware that, that that verse has received a lot of attention from various scholars. Verse 11, At that time shall it be said to this people in Jerusalem, A dry wind of the high places in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse, even a full wind from those places shall come unto me. Now also will I give sentence against them. Now this is kind of a fun fun verse. Because if you, you probably know enough Hebrew to understand what the word wind is. Ruach. And the word ruach is also the word for spirit. Just like in the Greek, pneuma means air, pneumatic, right? It's also the word for spirit. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit, using the Greek root. So, as you see here, there's, there's a double meaning, very likely. Even a full wind from those places shall come unto me, and now also I will give sentence against them. Verse 12, verse 12, Behold, he shall come up like clouds, and his chariot shall be like a whirlwind, and his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? For a, for a voice declareth from, uh, from Dan, and publish affliction from Mount Ephraim. Now, Dan was the northern part of the total land. Ephraim was the northern part of uh, the southern part of Israel, the northern part of the southern was part of Israel, the northern right on the border of, of the Judah. So this uh, from Dan to Ephraim is the span, if you will, of the nation Israel, that is the northern kingdom. <clears throat> Make mention to the nations, behold, publish against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and give out their voice against the cities of Judah. As keepers of a field are they against her roundabout, because she hath been rebellious against me, saith the Lord, thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. 
This is thy wickedness because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thine heart, mine heart. My distress, my distress, I am pained at my very heart. Jeremiah speaking. I am pained. He actually feels the pain. My heart maketh a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Jeremiah sees it coming. He doesn't just know it intellectually. He feels the anguish, the pain of the judgment that's going to come upon this nation. Destruction upon destruction is cried. The whole land is spoiled. Suddenly are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment. How long shall I see the standard? How long and, and, and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise. They are wise to do evil, but to do good things they have no knowledge. The next verses from 23 through 26 are described by some people as the most forceful passage in all prophetic literature. So it might be worth marking. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. For thus saith the Lord, uh, for thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. And for this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, I will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. And the whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. And they shall go into the thickets and climb upon the rocks. And every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in them. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Thou, though thou clothest thyself with crimson, and though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou enlargest thine eyes with paint, hmm, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers shall despise thee, and they will seek thy life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail, in the anguish of her who bringeth forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion, who bewaileth herself, who spreadeth her hands, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murderers. He's seeing, of course, the, the onslaught of the Babylonians coming, but there's also an overview here. You notice the woman in travail idea, the women of the, the beginning of birth pangs. That's smack of Matthew 24. It probably does, since we just finished Matthew, should ring in your ears of, the, of that theorem. But going back to these few verses, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. That's the very expression that's in Genesis chapter 1. We're seeing Genesis chapter 1 outlined here in reverse in reverse, in the sense that just the opposite's happening. Remember, he, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth became without without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God brooded, or moved, on the face of the waters. And God said, let light be, or let there be light. And it was so. Notice here, I beheld the earth, and it was without form and void. Same phrase, chosen deliberately, right out of the Torah, right out of Genesis. And the heavens, they had no light. Contrast, see? I beheld the mountains, and they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And, and I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. 
And I beheld, lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Heavy words. Tough stuff. Four times I looked, I looked, I looked. Uh, another small point uh, in here where it speaks of the, uh, uh, in verse 30, thy lovers shall despise thee, etc. The word lover is not the normal word in the Hebrew. It happens to be the masculine plural participle of God which speaks of the inordinate affection, and you can fill in the rest. Well, let's keep moving. we got a little time yet. Jeremiah chapter 5, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see me now, and, excuse me, and see now, and know, and seek in the broad places, if you can find a man. One, one man. Find a man. If there be any that executeth the justice, and seeketh the truth, and I will pardon her. And though, none is, he'll pardon the group for one righteous. Does that echo Genesis 18 when the three special visitors reach Abraham by the oaks of Mamre? Two angels and the Lord, and the Lord and those angels go on because they have an errand in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord negotiates with Abraham, or Abraham presumes to negotiate with God. What if there's 50 righteous? Which will be 45. How about 40? He finally gets them down to 10 and does have the guts to go further. Interesting, ethically characteristic episode, Genesis 18. But it lays down a principle. God agrees with the, Abram's logic that he won't, he'll, but, but for the righteous, he would spare the city. And when the angels get there, they take Lot out. And if you read that carefully, the episode where the angel, the two angels are there with Lot and that his incredible scene with the homosexuals in the city and all that, he, they point out to Lot, they're not there just for Lot's benefit. They point out that they cannot do their error until they get them out of there. That's their rules. They got orders. It's not just for Lot's benefit. They He has to get out of there so they, they can go ahead and, and pronounce the judge. Very important issues there. And we see the same thing hinted at right here in chapter 5, verse 1. Though they say, The Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. Verse 3, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they have not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have not. They have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. And therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the law of their God. I will go to the great men, and I will speak to them. For they have known the way of the Lord, and they have the law of their God. But these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Wherefore, three things. A lion out of the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the evening shall spoil them. A leopard shall watch over their cities. Every one of them that goeth out shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many and their backslidings are increased. How shall I pardon thee for this? The children have forsaken me and have sworn by them there are no gods. For I had fed them to the full. They then committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlot's houses. Pretty graphic, isn't it? They were like fed horses in the morning, and everyone neighed after his neighbor's wife. <laughs> you got to play on words in the English. The Hebrew is instantly I'm sparing you all kinds of footnotes because all the way through the Hebrew, there's, there's there are there are puns. Uh, the dakoa and the sound of the trumpet, dakoa and the sound are, are similar. There are many similar sounding words in the Hebrew, but I won't. We will we'll keep moving. Shall I not punish? For these things saith the Lord, and shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Go up upon her walls and destroy, but make not a full end. 
take away our battlements, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously against me, saith the Lord. They have denied the Lord and said, It is not he. Neither shall evil come upon us be, neither shall we see uh, sword or famine. And the prophet shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from afar, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. It is a mighty nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say. Now you can dissect these clues and discover they're not the Scythians. Herodotus points out the Scythians boasted that they were the youngest nation, not an ancient nation. Who is the ancient nation? The first nation. The nation that was started by Nimrod the hunter in Genesis chapter 11. 10. Uh, Nimrod shows up in Genesis 10, verse 10 and 1131. Okay. And so uh, he was the founder of a place called Babel, which became the root of Babylon. So this ancient nation... The mighty nations, ancient nation, the nations, language thou knowest not, neither understandest what they say, is that are the Babylonians. That's what Jeremiah has in view. Their quiver is like an open sepulcher. They are almighty men. The quivers are full of arrows. They are one of the things the Babylonians picked up from the Assyrians was archery. They were sharp at it, and every arrow dropped a guy. They were good at it. And they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flocks and thy herds. They shall eat up thy vines and fig trees. They shall impoverish the fortified cities in which thou trustest with a sword. Nevertheless, in those days, say the Lord, I will not make a full end with you. That's, you know, this is being, you notice that, that shows up all the way through here. I'll not make a full end. Shall come to pass when he shall say, Why do the Lord God these things unto us? That thou then shalt answer them, As ye have forsaken me and have served foreign gods in your land, so shall ye serve strangers in a land that is not yours. The prediction of the Babylonian captivity starting to service here. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding who have not, who have eyes and see not and ears who hear not, fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence? who have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass, pass it. And though its waves toss themselves, yet they not prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in the season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks unto the harvest." couple of things, the linking of control of the sea and the control of the rain shows up all through the Scripture. And in fact, in Ecclesiastes and in the Psalms, the linking of the water cycle is explicitly described. Why Solomon asks, why do all the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea doesn't get full? From whence they come, thither they return again. The clouds do distill upon man abundantly. The water cycle is described in the Scripture. It's interesting that links. It says here, he observeth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. That's seven weeks between between the Passover and Pentecost is a very specific period of time. A little background, no, no big deal. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withheld good things from you. Your sins have withheld good things from you. Is that true of you and I? You bet. Why does he want us to obey his law? For our own welfare, for our own joy, for our own fulfillment. God loves us too much to allow us to prosper in disobedience. 
God loves us too much to allow us to prosper in the paths of disobedience. If you really love your children, you make them obey. They make you unpopular, but why do you do that? Because that's the way they'll be fulfilled and grow and, 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 and have a happy life. God is no different. He does the same with you. If he allows you to prosper in disobedience, it would be an evidence that he's given up on you. Verse 26, for among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as the, the, that set of snares. They set a trap and catch men. Now notice what they catch, kind of interesting. Verse 27, as a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore, they are become great and grown rich. And I've marked this with Matthew 13. Those of you that know my peculiar off-the-wall views about the birds in Matthew 13, here's again a consistent use of that. The birds that pick away the the seed, which is the word, take refuge in the tree, the mustard seed that's become a monstrosity. So that's the ministers of Satan. Anyway, verse 28. They are grown fat, they shine, yet they pass over the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper in the light of the needy, yet do they not judge. Shall I not punish them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? An appalling and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end of it all? Another way of facetiously saying that the finest, when he said the, pre, the priests um, rule by their means, it's like saying they had the finest judges money could buy. Okay? Um, chapter 6, next time, the, the chapter of alarms. Same theme following through. God uh, beginning uh, through Jeremiah to start talking about building up his case, their idolatry, they're, they're um, turning against him, asking them to repent. They won't. God will send them a judgment. And that judgment is an uh, important milestone in their history. It's important lessons for us. We, uh, as we go through Jeremiah, we're going to be talking over and over again about idolatry. And you and I can look at that quaintly as some archaeological thing of, of ancient history and miss the point. What Chuck Smith so eloquently points out to all of us is something that uh, is, is visible here too. That is, man becomes like the gods he worshipped. They were worshipping emptiness, stones and trees, which have no being or life of their own, and they themselves became empty and had no life of their own. They worshipped Baal, Moloch, what have you. They became cruel, ruthless. You become like the gods you worship. If you worship commercialism, you'll become commercial. If you worship um, uh, power, you become the pawn of power. If you worship Jesus Christ, you will become like Jesus Christ. You will become like the God you worship. You and I aren't particularly tempted by Baal or Moloch or what have you, at least not as you might recognize them. But the idols in our world are vastly more attractive, seductive, in, in, entangling uh, than the ones that uh, were in Jeremiah's day. You and I have the same problems. You and I are victims of seduction. 
whether it's the networks, whether it's our entertainment media, whether it's the movies, whether it's things. The point is, is that whatever it is, it can be work, it can be careers, it could be people, it can be, you have your own list and you work hard at growing the list. But you got to be careful because you will become like that which you worship. Now, what God was concerned about here in, in the first five chapters of Jeremiah is that he'd been displaced. He had been displaced from being the first love. What is your first love? When you drive home tonight, what is your first love? God wants to be your first love. And there's something else about being the first love. He doesn't mean first on a list of ten. You know, I can visualize you talking to your girlfriend and telling her, boy, she's number one on your list. You don't expand, you don't ex explain to her that there's 17 on your list. She happens to be number one right now, but there's, by the way, there's these other, you know, you don't do that, do you? Being a first love implies a magnificent obsession to the exclusion of anything else. If you're a guy and you really have that first love, that becomes a magnificent obsession. Everything else is very, very secondary. Or if you're a gal, you're a guy, he's it. He's, he's preeminent above all things. That's the way you should look at him, like, like, like the church you look at Christ. If you're the guy, look at the girl. It should, you should be willing to give yourself for her, if it's that kind of relationship. It's called first love. It's called being it's a magnificent obsession. That's what God wants. He doesn't want just to be first on a list of a lot of things. He wants to be the consuming thing in your life, the, the, the thing by which everything else is measured. He wants a love affair, not an intellectual assent, not a hypocritical you know, uh, accession to some cultural background, nuts to that. He wants a relationship, and that's why he's pleading with Israel here, and that's why he has you and I in Jeremiah tonight, because he wants that relationship with you and I. If you're saved, praise God. But it's the relationship. Is it vital? Is it growing? Is it, is it consuming? Does it displace all other cares in your life? That's what he's after. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.